Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. We hope. I am your co-host, Misty Stinnett. And I am your co-host, Lisa Linky. You heard it here first. Now, this is the podcast where we read and review popular self-help books each week, and we share with you the vital information, the can't-miss stories, the must-read information (laughs) for you (laughs) to um, make your life so much better. And, you know, we guarantee or your money back, your life will be completely changed after hearing one episode of this podcast. Absolute money back guarantee. Think about how much you've paid. That's how much you're getting back. What if one day we're behind a paywall? (laughs) (laughs) This is said before. This, This is as of time of publication. There you go. There we go. So uh, it is currently June 7th. We have taken to timestamping the episodes in this uh, remote recording phase yeah. of Go Help Yourself because the world is changing so rapidly that, uh, it, you know, if this sounds like old news, that's why. Uh, not anything we're doing. Because it is. We're reading Excuse books me. that have already been published. <laughs> Who are we? <laughs> Who are we? <laughs> We're going to bring you all the most amazing self-help books you've never heard of that haven't even been written yet. Yeah. When you said popular today, I was like, or not so popular as the case may be. Thank you. And we we try to bring you, you know, brand new authors, prolific authors, and just FYI, FY, uh, just because they're prolific, like uh, for our longtime loyal listeners, one Bruce, Bruce Bryans does not mean that there is anything good that they have to contribute to the world. So Lisa is going to present us an amazing book today, and we are going to just dive right into it. What you got for us, Lisa? We also cuss sometimes. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We And we say that so that, you know, you can now put in your headphones if the kiddos are around or just let it rip, because let's be real, they're going to grow up to be grownups who cuss. And honestly, they probably already heard it all already in this in the time of pen, pandemia. Is that what we're going to call this era? Pandemia? And instead of Pangea, we've now become one. Pandemia. <laughs> and it's like Pandora and Avatar. We're all living in a surreal world. We're in Pandemia. And talk about two dated references. Pandora <laughs> and Avatar. And Pangea. Welcome, Welcome to Pan... Yeah, Pangea is the oldest <laughs> reference. Am I right? Okay. It's This is a podcast hold, you come hold to. Up. Smart hold up. Hold people. my beer, said the Big Bang. <laughs> <laughs> if you've never enjoyed listening to two STEM nerds do bits, this is this is not your podcast. Well, well, well welcome not only to Pandemia, but to your utopia. Okay? <laughs> and something okay. we haven't said in a long time is, STEM! Truly outrageous, truly, 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 truly outrageous. You guys get it. You get it. You're here for it. We're going to dive right in. Okay, Misty. Today I bring to you a reader-recommended book that I would have never heard of, never read, but I'm so grateful that I did. (gasps) Thank you, reader. I mean, nope, nope, listener. (laughs) Did I say reader? (laughs) Who can know? She she read the book. She read the book. (laughs) I don't remember what happened 20 seconds ago. So thank you. Thank you for all of you who continue to read this podcast each week. Really grateful. (laughs) Okay, the book is called How to Take Smart Notes, One Simple Technique to Boost Writing, Learning, and Thinking for Students, Academics, and Nonfiction Book Writers by Sönke Ahrens. And I think I said that right. Uh, He's German or Dutch, one of the two. Um, And it's recommended by uh, Janik Joransson, and that's um, uh, J-O-N-N-E-K-E. And I looked it up online to see how to to say it. So Janik uh, Jonica, I think I'm saying it right. I hope I'm saying it right. Here's her, here's her email to us. Dear Lisa and Misty, I am one of your LLLs. I have enjoyed listening <gasps> to you twice a week, many times with tears of laughter and sometimes sorrow or grief rolling down my cheeks. 
I have two books I would love you to discuss on your podcast. They are This is Marketing by Seth Godin and How to Take Smart Notes by Sunke Ahrens. Neither of them is a true self-help book, but they are both really useful in learning how to interact with this chaotic, busy world. With love, Janik. And I would say it is a self-help book. Jonic, thank qualifies. you so much. And and it sounds like it's a completely woo-woo self-help book, which is what I love. Let's <laughs> see, you're gonna nerd out so hard. Um I can't the book wait. is uh $8.99 after uh on Kindle after credits. It's $13.99 on Amazon in paperback. There is no audible version. And I looked on thriftbooks.com, which was recommended to us by another listener. Um it's yes. not available right now because there's not a lot of demand for it. Okay. So, well, uh, we're all too busy taking bad notes to look up and order a book. It's true. You are going to change the way you take notes. You're going to lose your mind, Misty. All of oh, this no. pomp and circumstance I hate change. at the top. I know. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. So about the author, this is from his website, takesmartnotes.com. Uh, Sunka Arens, and uh, this is his own bio. He says, interested in too many different things to qualify for a straightforward career. I write, coach, and give talks on various subjects. I worked at different universities, lastly, as an interim professor for philosophy of education at the University for the German Federal and Armed Forces in Munich before moving to Bangkok and traveling Asia for a couple of years. I am now, cool. back, in my, I am now back in my hometown of Hamburg, Germany. My idea of a perfect day involves a lot of sitting in a chair, reading, and thinking. The note-taking system allows me to turn this indulgence into a publication once in a while. My last book was about the distinction between experiment and exploration and is available in German and English. Oh. So, basically, this entire book is about how to use this methodology and technology created by a man named Nicholas Luhmann um, called The Slip Box. And it's incredibly useful for, it's actually called Zettelkasten, but like, uh, Zettelkasten, I think, but that's the German, the English translation would be slipbox. And it's incredibly useful for people who are academics, students, or nonfiction writers. And I think it could be incredibly useful for people who are creatives, for business individuals, and for anyone who finds themselves writing copy, researching things on the internet mm. multiple times, or students ah. in general. Whether you find yourself in high school, college, or a student of life trying to learn a new skill or area of knowledge. You know what's interesting? I just realized in this moment, nobody's ever sat me down and said, like, here's a proper way to take notes. Like, people talk about the proper way to write an essay. You want an introduction that states your thesis statement. And, you you know, but nobody ever sat down and was like, they just sort of say, take notes. Yes. And I... I took my note taking for granted. Some of us are better note takers than others. Like my mom remembers in college, the first thing she would do after a lecture is she would sit down immediately outside and go over her notes and like basically rewrite them. So she would mm. understand what she had grasped because your short term memory is so short. I right. having a strategic Speak for brain, yourself. Thank you. I have a strategic brain. When, a, when somebody is lecturing, a gift and a, a an ability that I have is I kind of know what they're setting up. And so I take notes as they're setting it, like with bullet points and numbering, you know, mm -hmm. like when they say there are six things we're going to be discussing, I number it and I'm already doing like an outline in my notes format. But right. that is not a skill that a lot of people have. And so, yeah, that's not, that's not the way everyone's brains work. That's right. It's yeah. A lot of times some people's notes are just useless to them. Anyway. Right. So I'm going to be covering the basics of how um, Nicholas Lumen's technology worked for him. And along the way, I'm going to highlight what I think would, would be or could be useful for those of us who are out of school and maybe don't even write nonfiction for a living, but are often tasked with presenting drafts or briefs or who would like to offer insights in a refined manner. So yeah. If you, so if you want to go to your spouse and offer insights in a refined manner about how they could do the goddamn laundry once in a while, you might want to listen to this book. Well, I think that something that the author argues is that the act of learning how to take better notes will make you a streamlined thinker and oral presenter in the long run. So yes. Um, but Great. I think that lots of us, when we sit down in a meeting and our boss says, does anyone have an idea? It's terrifying. It feels like a blank page. 
you know, like yes. how do I present it? Anyway, so this yes. book is chock full of research um, about brain chemistry and how we learn and study and a lot of anecdotal evidence as well to support the author's claims. So off the bat, this is about as far for woo-woo as you can get. You were 100% right. Um, and if you <laughs> want to learn more about the claims about writing, thinking, understanding, et cetera, please support the author and buy the book because there's tons of research in here. Great. So the book is separated into three parts. The first part is introduction. The second part is the four underlying principles. And the third part is the six steps, six steps to successful writing. Say that six times. Six steps to successful writing. Six steps to successful writing. So the introduction has four chapters. Everything you need to know, everything you need to do, everything you need to have, and a few things to keep in mind. Wait, hold on. Uh-huh. That's the new name of our podcast. Thank Everything you. you just- <laughs> it may not fit on the screen, but we'll scroll across. Uh, or just a few things to keep in mind. Yeah. Yes. Thank a you. A few things to keep in mind. Parentheses. Everything you need to know, everything you need to do, and everything you need to have. Um, the second part of the book, The Four Underlying Principles, has four chapters. Writing is the only thing that matters. Simplicity is paramount. Nobody ever starts from scratch and let the work carry you forward. And then the last part, the six steps to successful writing, separate and interlocking tasks, read for understanding, take smart notes, develop ideas, share your insight and make it a habit. I love these titles. It's a quick read. So I'm going to spend a lot of time in the introduction and the everything you need to like the the first part of the book. How Um, many pages is it? 178 pages. Oh, that is a quick read. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's the introduction. He says... Everybody writes. We write down not only those things we fear we won't remember, but also the things we try to memorize. And every intellectual endeavor starts with a note. And writing plays such a central role in learning, studying, and research that it's surprising how little we think about it, just like you mentioned. Yeah. And the author even calls out a problem in self-help for this arena. (gasps) Yeah. Basically, throw some shade. The self-help is either like academic and citing, like how you do stuff properly, or the other category is the psychological ones, which teach you how to get it done without mental breakdowns and before your publisher starts refusing to move the deadline, right? Like it's either like the mental struggle or actually the tangible stuff. He's like, but very few give guidance for the everyday note-taking that takes up the biggest chunk of our writing. So both of these kinds of categories of self-help ignore note-taking and improving organization of writing, not just this blank screen moment. And he says... This book aims to fill this gap by showing you how to efficiently turn your thoughts and discoveries into convincing written pieces and build up a treasure of smart and interconnected notes along the way. You can use this pool of notes not only to make writing easier and more fun for yourself, but also to learn for the long run and generate new ideas. But most of all, you can write every day in a way that brings your projects forward. And writing isn't what comes after reading or research. He says it's the medium of everything. So we have yeah. it backwards in our heads. We think that we we research, we do all that we read, all this, and then we write. He's like, no, 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 no. You're writing the whole time. Your notes are writing. I love this. And it sounds, this is maybe not the best analogy, but something that popped into my head is like, maybe there's a cookbook that says like, hey, here's how you can enjoy cooking more. Here's how you can, you know cut up these vegetables. And then there's another place, there's another cookbook that might say, here's how to better cut up these vegetables. But none of them are talking about the type of knife you should be using. Yeah. Or even, yeah, I love that. Like cutting up the vegetables, but like, if you don't have any knife skills. Yeah. If you, then how are you ever, (laughs) yeah. Or it's going to take you five times as long or they're not going to be the right dice size. And the reason he says that we don't focus on everyday writing and note-taking and we're never taught it is because we don't experience any immediate negative feedback if we do it badly. We don't realize we've done it poorly until we're in a deadline panic. Oh, shit. Yeah. And have you ever, have you ever had that experience where you're like, okay, I'm going to reread my notes to remind me of everything before the test. And then you read the notes and you're like, I am not, I'm still not clear. I don't know. He explains this and he talks about this phenomenon. So he says, the right question to ask is what can we do differently in the weeks, months, or even years before we face the blank page that will get us into the best possible position to write a great paper easily? And I would add this applies to us when we're in the meeting and our supervisor says, does anyone have any new ideas? Or when we're looking to beef up our LinkedIn page with a short article or collaborate with somebody. 
when somebody mm. says we should do something together, it's fun to say yes. And then when they say, what are you interested in? And it sucks to go, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. So he says, we don't struggle to write. We don't have trouble citing properly. We never struggle to write a text or write emails to our friends or mm-hmm. when, you know, we need to contact like our landlord to let them know that something's broken. Like we don't struggle to write then. That's says, really liberating, by the way, to <laughs> yeah. think that we're all writing all the time and with so much ease. <laughs> yeah. He's like the struggle for us. And he's mostly talking about academics here. But the struggle mm. is because they believe and they are made to believe that writing starts with a blank page. But this also applies mm. to nonfiction writers. And I would say fiction writers. Thank you. If you believe that you have indeed nothing at hand to fill it, you have a very good reason to panic. Mm. He says just having it all in your head is not enough. Getting it down on paper is the hard part. He says, yes, it is. Good, productive writing is based on good note taking. Getting something that is already written into another piece is incomparably easier than assembling everything in your mind and trying to retrieve it from there. Yeah. May I just say, having finished a rough draft of an outline yesterday, the outline part is, my God, the lion's share of the work. It is so, I faced so so much resistance, you know, invoking the war of art, sitting down and trying to do that. And that is the hard part. But taking that outline and then turning it into a script, phenomenally easy. The outlines are your Mm -hmm. notes, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he says the key to successful writing lies in the preparation. It also means that the vast majority of self-help books and study guides can only help you to close the barn door correctly and according to official rules, like citing, not just a moment but many months after the horse has already escaped. (laughs) (laughs) With that in mind, it's not surprising that the single most important indicator of academic success is not to be found in people's heads, but in the way they do their everyday work. In fact, there's no measurable correlation between a high IQ and academic success, at least not north of 120. That's amazing. Do you know what this reminds me of? Hmm. What what was the book that talked about being more oriented on your process than the product, like process oriented, big magic. magic. And I, I also feel like atomic habits touches on this as well. For sure. Um, when you are oriented on doing the process as well as you can and focusing on the richest process you can have, your products will automatically be better. But if you're only worried about the outcome and not the process, it's kind of a lose lose. Totally. Okay. So that's the introduction. I feel like I've set the table. I feel like I've been doing that a lot more lately with the books I've been reading. Well, that's what's most important is they lay down why this is important. The philosophy of the book, the, the, it's the essential context, right? Yeah. Because the rest of the chapters won't make sense if we don't understand that. Okay. So part one, chapter one, everything you need to know. So everything you know uh, up to now about note taking was taught without much regard to the overarching workflow. It was just, about, this like, is absolutely scandalous. Yes. Right. What he's saying. So he says this book aims to change your thought about that. And it's all about getting good structure. Structure is something you can trust. If you can trust the system you have, you can let go of the attempt to hold everything together in your head. And instead you can focus on what's important content, argument, and ideas. Right. And a good structure enables flow, which is that state that Mikhail, I can never say his last name talks about where you get so immersed in your work, you lose track of time. Yeah. And Angela Duckworth talks about it a lot in her book, Grit, yes. which we also have an episode research on. here too. Oh, great. Yeah. So structure, he says, is different than having a plan, even having a plan as a type of structure. So he says, how do you plan for insight, which by definition cannot be anticipated? So hmm. a plan is different than structure. So it's a huge misunderstanding that the only alternative to planning is aimless messing around. So the challenge is to structure your workflow in a way that insight and new ideas can become the driving force that push us forward and not plans that are hindered by unexpected discoveries or insights or snags, right? Hmm. So planners are the people who are unlikely to continue with their studies after they finish their examinations. Experts, on the other hand, would not even consider voluntarily giving up what has already proved to be rewarding and fun. Learning in a way that generates real insight is accumulative and sparks new ideas. And this ties into the Dunning-Kruger effect, which we've talked about before here and is related Mm. to imposter theory, imposter syndrome. So poor students lack insight to their own limitations, as we know, right? 
But good students constantly raise the bar for themselves as they focus on what they haven't learned and mastered. And this is why high achievers who've had a taste of the vast amount of knowledge out there are likely to suffer from imposter syndrome, feeling that they're not up to the job, even though of all people they are, especially compared to poor students. So within each chapter, there are many chapters. So there's like chapter 1.1, 1.2. And I like that these mini bite-sized chapters, you and I love that. Great. Yeah. Completionists. Okay. So (laughs) 1.1, good solutions are simple and unexpected. It's like, there's no need to build a complex system. No need to reorganize everything you already have. You can start right now by taking smart notes. So complexity is an issue because people try to reduce their complexity by separating what they have into smaller stacks and piles. That's me. That is me to yeah, a T. Yeah, 100%. I will categorize until yes. the cows come home and I don't have cows. So that means I'm there for a long time. Thank you. He says it makes it look less complex, but it quickly becomes complicated and it reduces the likelihood of building and, fi- and finding surprising connections between the notes themselves, which means a trade-off between usability and usefulness. So he says, so thankfully we don't have to do that. This is not about redoing what you've done before, It's a, but just about changing the way of working from now on. And he says, there's really no need to reorganize. Just deal with things differently in the moment that you have to deal with them anyway. He says, we only need two simple, well-known, proven ideas. The first is the slip box, which we're going to talk about next. And he says, the other idea is that even the best tool won't improve your productivity if you don't change your daily routines the tool is embedded in just like the fastest car won't help you much if you're driving on like a pothole dirt road. Right. Right. So mm-hmm. 1.2 chapter 1.2, the slip box story time. <laughs> I love this story so much. Misty, it is 1960s somewhere in Germany. Mm. Among the staff of a German administration office is the son of a brewer. His name is Nicholas Luhmann. He went to law school, but he has chosen to be a public servant as he did not like the idea of having to work for multiple clients. Fully aware he is also not suited for a career in administration as it involves a lot of socializing. He excuses himself (laughs) every day after his nine to five shift and goes home to do what he most liked, reading and following his diverse interests in philosophy, organizational theory, and sociology. Whenever he encountered something remarkable or had a thought about what he read, he made a note. Now, Many people read in the evening and follow their interests, and even some take notes. But for very few, it is the path to something as extraordinary as Luman's career. After collecting notes for a while in the way most people do, commenting the margins of a text or collecting handwritten notes, he realized his note-taking was not leading anywhere. So he turned note-taking on its head. Instead of adding notes to existing categories or the respective texts, he wrote them all on small pieces of paper, put a number in the corner, and collected them in one place, the slip box. He soon developed new categories of these notes, and he realized that one idea, one note, was only as valuable as its context, which was not necessarily the context it was taken from. So he started to think about how one idea could relate and contribute to different contexts. And just uh, amassing notes in one place would not lead to anything other than a mass of notes. But he collected his notes in his slip box in such a way that the collection became much more than the sum of its parts. His slip box became his dialogue partner, his main idea generator, and productivity engine. It helped him to structure and develop his thoughts, and it was fun to work with because it worked. And it led him to enter academia. So one day he put some of these thoughts together into a manuscript and handed it over to Helmut Schelsky, one of the most influential sociologists in Germany. And Schelsky took it home, read what this academic outsider had written and contacted Lumen. And he suggested, he said, you should become a professor of sociology in this newly founded university of um, Bielefeld, Bielefeld, sure. Um, and as attractive as and prestigious as this position was, Luhmann wasn't a sociologist, and he didn't have the formal qualifications required to even become an assistant for a sociology professor in Germany. He hadn't written habilitation, which is the highest academic qualification in many European countries, which is based on the second book after the doctoral thesis. So he oh. never held a doctorate, never even obtained a sociology degree. And most people would take this offer as a huge compliment, but point out the impossibility of it and move on. So all his notes were about sociology? That's what he was interested in, in in systems theory and organizational systems. Right, right, right. So most people be like, that's really nice. Thank you. That's a compliment. Not this guy. He turned to his slip box and with its help, he put together a doctoral thesis and the habilitation in less than one year. 
Oh my God. While taking classes in sociology concurrently. Shortly after, in 1968, he was chosen to become a professor of sociology at that university and a position he would hold for the rest of his life. Now get this. In 30 years, he published 58 books and hundreds of articles. Translations not included. Many became classics in their respective fields. He is considered like a founder uh, in organizational theory. Even after his death, about a half dozen more books on diverse subjects like religion, education, or politics were published in his name based on almost finished manuscripts lying around his office. While some career-oriented academics try to squeeze out as many publications out of one idea as possible, this guy seemed to do the opposite. He constantly generated more ideas than he was able to write down. His texts read as if he was trying to squeeze as much insight and many ideas possible into one publication rather than the opposite of most academics. Right, 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 right. He never forced himself to do something he didn't feel like. He even said, I only do what is easy. I only write when I immediately know how to do it. If I falter for a moment, I put the matter aside and do something else. That to me, I was like, I'm on board with this. So, so hard work can be fun as long as it's aligned with our intrinsic goals. And when we feel in control Mm -hmm. and the problem arises when our workflow is inflexible and it can't adjust, right? That's why planners rarely continue with their studies. So, this is about not having the right mindset. It's about having the right workflow. I mean, that guy was so prolific. It's crazy to me. Okay. Yeah. And it, and I just keep thinking about snags. Like if one tiny snag comes up and I lose flow or I'm interrupted in a work day, it's, it's very hard to recover. It really Like is. I definitely struggle with that. That's why planning is the worst. Like the planning is really, really, it, it, you cannot plan and be, um, planning is not a structure. Yeah. And it, it adds a whole other layer of like, oh my gosh, I feel guilty that I didn't yes. achieve 100 insights in this three hour session I set aside to work. Or you were like, I'm going to write three paragraphs on this subject, but then you had an insight about something totally different, which mm-hmm. is fascinating. But if you didn't achieve the goal of your plan, you do feel guilty. Yeah. I feel terrible. So I'm going to explain to you the slip box. So strictly speaking, he had two slip boxes, a a bibliographical one, which contained the references and brief notes on the content of the literature, and the main one in which he collected and generated his ideas in response to what he read. So whenever he read something, yeah. To clarify, so the way I'm imagining it, and tell me if this is off, literally writing something on like a post-it note and putting it in a physical box. I'm about to tell you, and you are right. Okay. So whenever he read something, he would write... The bibli- like the bibliographic information on one side of a card, like an index card, and make brief notes about the content on the other side. Those would end up in his bibliographic slip box. Okay. In the second step, shortly after, he would look at his brief notes and think about their relevance for his own thinking and writing. And then he would turn to his main slip box and write his ideas, comments, and thoughts on new pieces of paper using only one piece of paper for each idea and restricting himself to one side of the paper, forcing him to be concise and eloquent, right? And he didn't just copy ideas or quotes from the text, but instead he made a transition from one context to the another. So he didn't just reiterate, he put into his own words succinctly, what this is interesting to me, how this relates to what I'm interested in, what I think about it, what ideas are generated for me by it. Does that make sense? Yes, I think I'm, it's getting a little bit heady because there's not like a concrete example yet of like a subject we're talking about. Is there a way that you can yeah. put it? So say that you, so you're a writer, okay? Yes. And you'd love to be a showrunner one day. Yes. So say you read an article on the WGA, a website about um, a showrunner who ran a room a certain way. Right. By the way, for those who are not in the biz, that's the Writers Guild of America. Yeah. Beautiful. And if I, I can make this even broader. But I think this this would work sure. for you. So you make a note of where you found the article and generally what it was about. And then shortly after, within like a probably that day or two, you write a one page, one sided write up of how it applies to you and what you're interested in. So like for you, you're like, oh, what I took from this, this article was how I would want to uh, run my room is this, the, the trouble or the challenge that I, whatever it is, you summarize it in your own words, demonstrating that you really understood what was happening. Okay. So this is, this slip box is almost like ideas for life. 
yes, for you, if you would like it to be for an academic, it's definitely generating extra work. So hang tight. Cause I think yeah. you're going to see how it works when it, when it, okay. Goes. But here's, here's the trick of what it really worked for him. He didn't organize his notes by topic, but he gave this abstract way of giving them fixed numbers. So whenever he added a note, he checked the box for other relevant notes to make possible connections between them. So if he had a note about, organizational systems and politics. And then he had another note about politics. He would link them on his page so he could understand when it was time to pull ideas, he could find them all that were linked. Does that make sense? What do you mean page? He would link them on what page? So the first bibliographic slip box was where he wrote basically a citation. Mm -hmm. So like WGA, fall magazine, here's the author showrunners. And then within a day or two, he would write on one side of one sheet of paper his main ideas and thoughts from that. Not quoting, not copying text, but what was useful for him. Thoughts, ideas, generated questions, concerns, that kind of thing. And that was his main slip box. Okay, so so his main slip box, he's actually using full sheets of paper, That's not right. just little teeny tiny one side note cards. And containing it to one one side of paper. So you're forcing yourself to be succinct and eloquent in your own words of what you learned from this, from this, um, thing. Okay. But we're talking like an eight and a half by 11 standard size piece of paper. Yes. Okay. So that's the two. So remember he has two. One is a bibliographical, bibliographical, that word is tough for me. And one is his actual, like, this is my ideas. This is my writing. And that's Mm -hmm. where he kept it to one page, one side of one page for each thing that he wrote. Okay. So then he assigned these numbers by topic. Here's how, how it works. So he says, everything you need to do. He says, imagine you have some friendly genie prepare a rough draft of your paper for you or a well-paid assistant. You said, I want to write a paper on X. And the genie was like, well, let me pull together a rough draft. Basically, this is how the slip box works, except you are the genie and you did all the work when you took the notes. He says, granted, writing these notes is the main work. And then he says, it will take enormous amounts of effort, time, patience, and willpower, and you'll probably break under the weight of the test. Just kidding. It's the easiest part of all. Writing these notes is also not the main work. Thinking is, reading is, and understanding and coming up with ideas is. And this is how it's supposed to be. So you read the article. Mm -hmm. You make a note of, and in the online versions, it's much easier. You don't have to. You just write like the citation. And then you write, this is what I think about it. The numbers, they're basically categories, right? Yes. So, okay. So I might say, okay, if I put a number one on anything, that is socioeconomic stuff. Yes. If I put a number two on something, that's pop culture. Yes. Number three is science. Yes. And so, so it, if I'm summating my ideas and putting them into my main slip box, yes. I might put like a two and a three. Yes. So, so then when I go, oh, I want to talk about anything where pop culture meets science, I would pull out anything that has a two and three. Yes. And you've already written your thoughts about it. Yes, yes, yes. That's where your cross-contamination of ideas happens. That's why the little stacks and little piles on our desk is usable, but doesn't really facilitate new ideas. That's like how, the synthesis. Okay. Yeah. That's how he was able to write 50 fucking books in 30 years. Because in his writing and in his digestion of his writing and his own ideas, the work was already done. He just needed to pull it out and then order it. And then when he looked at it, maybe new ideas came up. How big was his slip box? Like, how big are we talking this physical boxes? I think, like, there are really no pictures online. It's being studied. It's actually being studied because he was so prolific and so well-published I think yeah. like probably it was like a card catalog for his bibliography because of course he would read like five or six articles a day. You know what I mean? And he was an academic. So now there are, there are versions online. So if all of a sudden I'm going, you know what? I can't stop thinking about like family and family structures or family psychology. And I, I want to talk about father daughter relationships or whatever. Then I might open up my thing and I go, okay, I know that number five is anything to do with family. Pull out all the slips that have a five on it and just look at them and go, oh, cool. I can write about this now. Yes. Because you've already written it. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. It was hard for me to get it too. And he doesn't have any like visuals in the book. And this thing was 70 years old and is being studied. So like 
I get it. But also the fact that there's software now that's free that you can use is great. So basically. Oh, is there? Uh huh. So basically what you do is he has three kind of notes, fleeting notes. There's always something in your hand to capture an idea, every idea that pops in your mind. This shouldn't cause distraction. Put them in one place and process them later. Literature notes. Whenever you read something, you make notes, right? Keep it short, mm-hmm. extremely selective. Use your own words. And then permanent notes, those go in your slip box, right? Go through the notes you made in step one or two and really think about how they relate to what's relevant in your own research. He says the idea is not to collect, but to develop ideas, arguments, and discussions and write one note for each idea and write it as if you were writing for someone else. Useful sentences, disclose your sources, make references, try to be precise, brief, clear, all of that stuff. Throw away your fleeting notes, put your literature notes in your reference system, and then forget about them. And the whole point is forgetting about it so you can free your mind up to actually do the thinking. You don't need to remember, you free it up to do thinking. So then he says, develop your topics, your questions. And then after a while, you've got an idea to write a topic about and turn to your notes and make a rough draft. This is all starting to make sense. I am wondering if you can clarify something for me in the bibliographical slip box. Yeah. So say it's like I just read something in psychology today about families. Yes. And so I put a little five on it. But am I ever referencing in my main slip box where I'm synthesizing notes? Am I ever putting the reference there? Or how do I ever match up a reference? Like say I come back to it six months later. How do I know that the insights I had in my big slip box, how do I remember what they match up to in the bibliographical one? This is really good. This is a lot more detail that is not in this chapter yet. I think he tells it a little bit about exactly what to do, but more specific in the book. I think this is, he's describing what Nicholas Lumen did. I would mm-hmm. recommend if you're interested in this, using a free online software that does this automatically and will cross-link any, any note that you write, like any write-up that you write will be automatically linked to the thing that you've done. So this oh, was okay. all before okay. computers. So he had to right. cross-reference if he wanted to go back. Nowadays, what you could do if you wanted to do it in your own damn Word document, if you are very comfortable, right? You could mm-hmm. write at the bottom the citation and have it. Right. But I think my recommendation, if you were interested in doing this, is getting the free software and letting it kind of guide you to do it. Great. And you'll share where we can get that at the end? You bet. So basically your toolbox, chapter three, everything you need to have. You need something to write with and something to write on. Pen and paper are fine. A reference mm-hmm. management system. He says the best programs are free online. Great. The slip box and the best program is free. And an editor, whichever one works for you. And he says the very good ones are free too. He says, what do you mean editor? Th- a text a text editor? I think not a physical person editor. editor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, because the very good very good editors are not free. So I'm definitely sure he means a text editor there. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah. He says, more is unnecessary, less is impossible. And just a few things to keep in mind. Getting the tools ready shouldn't take more than five to 10 minutes. And it's crucially important that you need to know not only how to work with it, but why it works, right? Mm. If you know why it works, then you'll be able to. So the underlying principles, and I'll blow through this, this is part two pretty quickly. Writing is the only thing that matters. There's no such thing as a history of unwritten ideas. So... Mm. Focusing on writing as if nothing else counts doesn't mean you should do everything else less well, but it certainly makes you do everything else differently. So like if you mm-hmm. go into a meeting, a staffing meeting or something like that, knowing that you're going to have to write up succinct notes of what your impression is and your thoughts and questions, it's going to sharpen your focus. Mm-hmm. It's going to change the way you read as well. He says you're going to become more focused on relevant aspects Knowing you can't write down everything, you're going to engage, you're going to, you know, you can't rephrase, you're going to get the gist, you're going to see patterns, all of that stuff is going to, it's going to make you better at all of this. Yeah. And simplicity is paramount, chapter six. So he says, many students and academics handle their ideas and findings in a way that it makes immediate sense. If they read an interesting sentence, they underline it. If they have a comment to make, they write it into the margins. If they have an idea, they write it into their notebook. He says, working like this leaves you with a lot of different notes in many different places. Writing then means needs to rely heavily on your brain to remember where these different notes are written down. Mm-hmm. So part two of the book, he's really kind of justifying the need for a slip box. Right. 
in this old system, you have to remember where did I store this note and which topic was it in? And in the new mm-hmm. system, the question is, in which content will I want to stumble upon it again? And that's how you decide what to number it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the slip box is like the shipping container of the academic world. Instead of having different storage for different ideas, everything goes into the same slip box and is standardized in the same format. And everything is streamlined towards one thing only, insight that can be published. And the biggest advantage compared to a top-down storage system organized by topics is that the slip box becomes more and more valuable the more it grows instead of getting messy and confusing because there's going to be more and more interlocking ideas and opportunities for connection. Right. Cross-pollination, intersection. Yes. Yes. So here's a question, Lisa. Yeah. So far, this makes this is making a lot of sense for generating new ideas. Yes. Understanding insights. Yes. But how does this work if I'm, say, a college student and I'm taking notes and my psychology 101 class? Like, yes. how how is that going to help me take better notes? Well, first of all, you won't be learning for immediate regurgitation and dump. You'll actually be understanding the ideas. So our short-term memory is a limited resource. It's not that we have to choose to focus either on learning or understanding. It's always about understanding. The things we understand are connected in our brain. Rules, theories, narratives, logic, mental models, explanations, all of that, that's connected in our brain. And the slip box is the external representation of that lattice work. So the problem with learning like in a textbook like that and writing a note is the same problem with flashcards. You will learn the material, but you will have no long-term recollection of it because there's no context around it. Mm. So by, by reading something, putting it into your own words, truly that demonstrates understanding. And then you will be able to actually learn it. Right. So, so if I'm a college student and I'm taking notes in that psych 101 class. Yeah. And after class, I go through and I look at the notes I took in class and I reword them in my own way so that I understand them. I put them in that slip box. Even if I don't then pull them out and read them again before the, the test, like even just that act will help me to understand. Agreed. And in theory, the lecture is should be in combination with the text that you are reading. So if you have read the text prior to the lecture, you have written your own interpretation of what it means rather than trying to memorize facts or highlighting or making a note about it. When you go to the lecture, the lecture should support what you already understand or clarify or allow you to ask questions versus mm, be, okay. it should be um, lighting your knowledge aflame rather than filling a vessel. <laughs> Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Forget that's not a, that's not my quote. I think it was like Ovid who said that or somebody like that. Like knowledge is not a vessel to be filled, but kindling to be lit a fire. So if you do that work ahead of time and truly understand the content, not just have read it and made notes about it, but have put it into your own words and synthesized it and put it into context in your own brain. Then when you go to the lecture, that's going to reaffirm that for you and offer up opportunities for discussion, question, reflection. And then you can actually go back with this new information and generate new notes. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think it actually helps you learn the material. And what we know is that that will, you will retain that information much longer than cramming for a test. Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for asking these great questions. There is a lot in this book, even though it's short. Basically, the third of the book is just supporting this method. Um, if you can't say it clearly, you don't understand it yourself. That's a quote by John Cyril. And when yeah. you're writing your notes, the audience is your future self. <laughs> so, so to a certain degree, learning is understanding. And so if you can't, if you can't understand it and say it, you haven't really learned it. And he's like, make a career one note at a time. This statistic floored me. Half of all doctoral theses will stay unfinished forever. What? Yeah. And he said, Luman Slipbox contains about 90,000 notes which sounds like an incredibly large number, but it only means that he wrote six notes a day from the day he started to work with a slip box until he died. That's not undoable. No, six notes a day is not Especially for an academic whose job is to read, right? So if I'm taking it for me, what would be useful for me maybe as a business person who's charged with coming up with new ideas or policies or whatever, when I do my reading or when I hear something, I can interpret it in my own notes and then use one of these free systems. And then when I see a problem that needs to be fixed, I can go to the system and look up what I've already seen, read, et cetera, and generate something quickly. 
So that's, there's yes. so much more. It's great. Um, he talks a lot about, he brings up Carol Dweck. He brings up deliberate practice. There's so many things. He talks about how to develop ideas, topics, make smart connections. And ultimately the slip box will do all of this for you because the, when you have the right structure in place, the ideas will foment and you will never yeah. work on just one thing at a time. And he's like, like, mm. like Luman said, if something bothered me, I put it down. I picked up something else. It can be a creativity machine. And it's just, I was really fascinated by this. And I am a person I've committed to stopping this pile of shit. I'm going to start using one of these, um, free, uh, software systems. That's my thing. Absolutely. I'll leave you with this. The actual writing, Ernest Hemingway was once asked how often he rewrote his first draft. His answer is, it depends. I rewrote the ending of A Farewell to Arms, the last page of it, 39 times before I was satisfied. So he says, if there's one piece of advice wow. that's worth giving, it's to keep in mind that the first draft is only the first draft. Wow. Lisa, great job. This was... This, wow. is, this is hard, and it's it's translated from... German to English to begin with. So, and there are no pictures in the book. I went online and looked at pictures and there's some of Luman's like actual index cards written. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think this is revolutionary and I, I hope that students start doing this. I agree. And I have a feeling it's one of those things that will make so much sense when you actually do it. Like it's harder to explain on the page yes. than it is to just yes, have two you. boxes in front of you or the software and sort of do it. Thank you. And thank you for your patience with that. No, I think I think you've done an amazing job. I'm absolutely going to start doing this. I mean, we take a ton of notes for the podcast anyway. And you know, I have on my phone in a note-taking app, I have all these ideas for projects I want to write. Just like little offhanded notes. That's not helpful to me. Well, it's it's robbing you of potential insight yeah. when you go back to review them because if you take out everything that's interesting to you on that topic, you might go, "Oh my gosh, 14 of my 20 notes also intersect with body politics or whatever. That's right. And then you go, oh, that's what I really want to write about. And when I jot down that note, I'm doing it with the express purpose. So I don't have to remember it. I don't have to tax my brain with remembering it, but I certainly don't write that down in like a longer explanation of like, why this is interesting, why I'd like to do it, what would, what I'd like to explore more, et cetera. It's just like a one liner. So I do require my brain to do a lot of mental work when I go back to think about all the things that was interesting to me. Do you know what it reminds me of is on Pinterest, you can pin a photo and then it will say, well, what do you like about this picture? And that yes. extra step is like, oh, wait, why? What am I attracted to? I guess it's the the it's natural the fibers I keep seeing. Mm -hmm. It's the Pinterest of the academic world. Thank you. And when That's you're putting together a draft, you're basically making a board. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. But then you look at it and you go, oh, I already know how I want to decorate my new bedroom because I've got 15 pictures that keep appealing to me. So it must be this thing. Oh, my God, Misty. Why didn't you say that at the beginning of the episode? <laughs> I didn't get it till just now. Let's edit this out and put it in the front. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Um, that that statistic about doctoral theses is staggering. So does that mean that people basically just get stuck and afraid and they just never finish their Or they run out thesis? of money and they have to start working or, you know, because not only is it writing it, they have to write it, then they have to defend it. So like writing it is terrifying. And if you don't have this intrinsic drive and a vast resources of already interconnected understanding, it's that blank page syndrome. But you don't get your your doctoral degree if you don't do your thesis, right? That's right. Oh my God. So this is really a huge stumbling block. This is a bottleneck, yes. right? To yes. the academic world. And therefore, however many insights we could have gotten from those really yes. smart brains and people yes. who are passionate, but just couldn't get past it. I mean, there's no saying that they're not still using those insights in other places. They're just not doing it in academia. Right. Or they're not doing it as full tenured professors. Maybe they're working as TAs, et cetera. And they just haven't finished it yet. But it's all based on the workflow. We create a structure that we can work within. Right. Lisa, what is the free software? Great. Where can so we there's find this? a couple called Zettelkessen. Yeah. So we'll link to the um, software that anybody wants to try in show notes. I'm definitely going to try it. Yeah, I am too. I think on his website, he has links to some. Great. So Lisa, did this book need to be written? Yes. 
Who is this book perfect for and who's it terrible for? This book is perfect for anybody who's a student. Um, I would say high school on. This might be tough reading for a high school student, but I, I would love to see high school classes, especially students engaged in AP classes, like prepping them or anybody prepping a college prep class, learning how to do this. You know what? What occurs to me is that this book might be tough reading for that, but a demonstration by a teacher in a classroom would probably sink in very easily. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just real quickly, I am going to link an in smart notes on them on takesmartnotes.com in the tools section. He links to um, Zettelkasten standalone apps. And then he's like, if people who want to stick with note taking apps, like Evernote is sometimes used. So that's an, that's a mm-hmm. widely known, like note used note based app. And so if you want to try it, you can that way. Great. So uh, the author's website is takesmartnotes.com. Yep. And that'll be in show notes. Wonderful. So who's this book terrible for? I think it's terrible for people who are not interested in changing the way that they, their workflow and not for people who don't write. Do you know what I mean? Like if your job doesn't need you to write, but for anybody who wants to understand something and truly learn it, I think this idea of writing it in your own words is tantamount. Yeah, it sounds like it. And did you put anything into practice from this book yet? I haven't yet, uh, but I am going to get one of these programs because I really am tired of, I am a font of ideas and I'm frustrated on not following through. Yeah, but maybe it's because you're not seeing the insights that are sparking, that are kindling your fire. Yeah, or like giving myself the gift of writing in my own words and taking the time to like create a note about it. Um, that would yeah. give me this intrinsic de- drive and desire to keep going. Absolutely. And do you have any homework for me? I would love for you to, when you take a note on something that interests you, maybe just take time to put it in your own words just once or twice and see if you find that helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I do that a lot for the the books we cover because I'm trying, you know, we're trying to cover a whole book in an hour. Yeah. So I'm always like, so here's the gist of it. What they're basically saying is blank, blank, blank. Yeah. But I, I do find that it it does stick. Yeah. And I will say you're, you point out exactly what the author got wrong is that there's no real pictures about this. And I think he did write it for mm. academia. So uh, academics inherently understand taking notes, like writing in their own words and that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. what he did get right was this concept of we never teach how to take notes for our own use and learning. People just take notes. And the help that's out there is about like citing an actual structure of a paper or, oh, you're stuck. You know what I mean? Right. But never. But it sounds like you can avoid getting stuck in the first place if you go more upstream yeah. to how you're even handling the information as it comes in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank yeah, you, for Lisa. Amazing me. job. That was tough. That was tough to for my brain to work in pandemic month three. You did an amazing job. Did I? And mm-hmm. when you said pandemic month three, it scared me because I just thought like I in my mind we cut to and we're like, welcome to pandemic month nine. And I'm just going like, no, <laughs> no, unsubscribe, opt out. No, thanks. <laughs> Thank you for being so patient, Misty. Ah, no. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for enlightening me that way. And I really feel like I'm so curious if there's like a two minute YouTube video that would show how this works, because I feel like, yeah, that would have, it would be easy to do that thing for me to look. No, (laughs) if there's one, we'll link to it in show notes. Yes. If not any of our LLLs, can you make one? Thank you. Oh, I see one right here. Yep. Simply explained. Four minutes and 49 seconds. We'll link to it. Thank you so much, everybody. <laughs> With that, life is abundant. <laughs> also, can I say I'm very proud of you for not making one single sex joke during Slipbox? I said it 40 times. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know, you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at G-H-Y podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.